is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Brian Ting. In today for Charles Feldman. The January 6th committee lays out more of its case today, presenting more evidence it says shows that former President Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election. His closest campaign advisors, top government officials, and even his family were dismantling his false claims of 2020 election fraud. There is even talk of Rudy Giuliani being drunk when advising Mr. Trump to declare victory. We go in-depth into the second January 6th hearing. Some Democratic officials and strategists are already worrying about the 2024 election and if President Biden can win. But who would replace him as the Democratic nominee? And a bipartisan group of senators reaches a deal on gun legislation, but is it enough? The bears invade Wall Street, kicking out the bulls. We'll look into what can stop the stock market downslide, the inflation uptick. Russia slowly and steadily making progress in the eastern part of Ukraine, taking over the region. Significant, but is the West losing interest in the war? And if you keep forgetting your passwords, Apple has a new plan. We start, though, with the 2nd January 6th committee hearing. With us is CBS News correspondent Steve Dorsey, who is in Washington, D.C. And, Steve, you might say the big takeaway uh, from today's hearings was that uh, former President Trump knew he lost, but he wanted to push forward anyway. Uh, yeah, and we, we learned a, a few things from this hearing, including more of those clips of that tape deposition uh, given to the committee by uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr. And he reiterated his points that he disagreed with any kind of claim that lacked evidence uh, of widespread election fraud going on not only by President Trump, but also his advisor uh, at the time, his, his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and another lawyer, Sidney Powell. Uh, we also learned from um, uh, a campaign aide that uh, Rudy Giuliani was uh, reportedly drunk while advising the president on election night back in 2020. Uh, and this all plays into uh, the, the committee's focus, which is the president knew about uh, his advisors telling him these, uh, uh, these these claims of fraud were wrong, and he still rallied support ahead of the January 6th insurrection anyway. And fundraised off of it. That was a big piece that uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren was talking about. All of the money that was made off of all these emails that were sent out saying this was stolen from us when it very clearly was not, and even the people sending those emails knew it wasn't. Yeah, she called that the big ripoff in addition to the big lie, which is the fraud, the big ripoff uh, with the Trump campaign profiting off of uh, donations uh, based on those claims and, and funneling them into a number of sources, including uh, his, uh, his, his former um, White House chief of staff's charity. So where do we go from here uh, with this uh, knowledge going forward? What do you anticipate the next chapters of the hearings will outline? And uh, with this knowledge that the uh, president may have uh, willfully ignored the truth and, and gone on with it. I think we're going to hear a little bit more about what happened next. Uh, so this is the origin story, if you will, of the uh, of the election um, uh lies, if you will, uh, from from former President Trump. Now we're going to learn a little bit more about what happened on January the 6th. Uh, What was the president doing in the White House? What were his key aides doing in the White House? And then ultimately, uh, how did uh, the pressure campaign also begin with the president reaching out to key officials, including Brad Raffensperger of, of, uh, of Georgia, trying to pressure him to find more votes? There were warnings from the chairman during the first hearing that, you know what, this isn't over yet. This is an ongoing crisis. And there was more of that here, right, with some of these warnings that we told the former president, all of these insiders, his close circle told the former president, but there's no reasoning with this man. And if you take that to the next logical step, saying he wouldn't listen to us, 
then are they painting him as as not fit for office going forward? It seems to be uh, perhaps that way, including uh, the harsh uh, criticism from from Bill Barr. However, uh, it's important to note that in his resignation letter, uh, Bill Barr uh, seemed to suggest that there was some validity. Uh, to investigating and pursuing more of these uh, these election fraud uh, claims by former President Trump. Either way, uh, there's there's obviously bl- bad blood now between the two men, with uh, President Trump reacting on Twitter to, uh, or I'm sorry, on, on Truth Social, the Twitter-like alternative platform he now uses, um, to Bill Barr saying that uh, he was a bad attorney general and, and he was weak. CBS News correspondent Steve Dorsey in Washington, D.C., covering these hearings. Steve, thanks. Right now, though, the January 6th committee worked to lay out a coherent case that former President Trump was actively seeking to overturn the 2020 election. The Justice Department could use the information to make a case of its own. Was that case made further today? Further made. Renato Mariotti is an attorney, former federal prosecutor and host of the On Topic podcast. Renato, thanks for joining us. So tell us, based on what we learned today, does that change the trajectory at all as to uh, what the ultimate outcome may be? Great question. I think that the the committee did accomplish something important today, which is introducing evidence to show that uh, former President Trump knew that he had lost the election and knew that the election uh, fraud claims that had been, that were being made by himself and his supporters were false. The, if the if there ever was a criminal case of the former president. It would likely be an important element to that case that the, the former president was knowingly making falsehoods, was engaging in fraud, something along those lines. And that would require proof that the former president knew what he was saying was false. So I do think that was important. And frankly, the evidence, what I thought was interesting was it was largely from former um, staff and f- former uh, allies of the of the president. Where though does that fall along the line of corrupts versus actually illegal? A great question. Um, I think they certainly established um, beyond any doubt that there was there was as you put it corrupt activity that was taking place. Whether it's criminal is a different story, and I think that. Um, a lot, you know, whether they can establish a criminal case is really going to depend. I think the 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 strongest case is probably going to be some sort of uh, it's going to be built around something that's actually more narrow than you might think. In other words, they've laid out this multi-step conspiracy involving all these folks who are storming the Capitol and engaging in, an, in a violent insurrection. And I think any criminal charge would be more narrowly focused on false statements that were made by Trump or that Trump was trying to get others to make on his behalf in order to, you know, defeat the lawful functions of the United States or some other or, or some other state. Yeah, you're trying to draw a line from election night to January 6th. And uh, the narrative laid out today that uh, the former president basically just looked for any uh, willing yes man, as it were, uh, to say, hey, look, you got a, a fighting chance at this, or at least you have some way to profit off it one way or another. And then the, the next day, just hours later, a lot of people on his mailing list getting uh, you know, appeals to, to donate. And then that uh, continues to stir up a frenzy uh, going into early January. Yeah, I think that one one unexpected twist today 
was how they tie this to the fraud on Trump's own voters and supporters. It's very interesting. You don't often see camp a lot of campaign uh, pleas uh, potentially charged as a fraud. But I do think that they established today, regardless of whether you charge it or not, that in any kind of common sense of the term, this was bogus scam fraud. They're, they're telling Trump supporters, you need to donate for the special election fund. And that fund did not even exist. A lot of this is for the eyes of, of a certain someone. That's the attorney general, right? What do you make of this sidebar story that's always been out there that Merrick Garland is, is not going to do this, uh, pick your adjectives to describe, but is going to always be reluctant to charge a former president with anything? Well, I think that Garland is in a very difficult position because any case against Trump by its nature is not going to be an airtight case. There's going to be an element of risk there for a prosecutor. His own state of mind is difficult to get your head around, uh, much less prove. Um, He's obviously controversial. Some jurors might actually like him. Um, and on top of all that, the evidence here is complicated. There's lawyers around giving him advice and it's not clear what, you know, what he really believes. So I think he's got, but, you know, he may have a coin flip of a case or a case that could go either way, but the public, I think, is convinced many in his own party are convinced that if he doesn't bring a case against Trump, then he is a failure is, is somehow not uh, not going along with his duty when ironically the justice department usually does not take on cases that they're not very confident in uh and so it'll be interesting to see what the justice department does in response renato mariotti attorney former federal prosecutor host of the on topic podcast coming up the bears are taking over wall street the stock market tumbles big today and apple's getting rid of passwords in favor of something it says is even more secure Right now, concern growing in Democratic circles about whether President Biden should run again in 2024. This comes as some Democratic strategists fear big losses in November in the midterms. New York Times interviewing dozens of officials who say they're not sure the president can win in two years. So who can? Dr. Jaha Howard is a Democratic strategist, Georgia-based civil rights advocate. Thanks for being with us. So I'm not sure if you watched Face the Nation yesterday, but AOC was asked this directly, would not commit. Um, she's obviously to one side of the party, but she can't be the only one who's worried if all this reporting is correct. Sure, sure. Um, there are elements of the party that's concerned, but I think we have to be honest and say, hey, how, what, the, what kind of message does it say that the sitting president uh, is not your best option? Um, and I don't think Democrats can truly say that we have a better option. Well, yeah, because the most powerful uh, weapon in politics is incumbency. If you give that up, I mean, who'd be uh, a better alternative? I mean, what what name is getting tossed around that hasn't already that excites anybody? Yeah, I think that's the problem. I think uh, if you look at all the options on the table, there's some challenges with each option. And your your best bet is the incumbent uh, sitting president. Counterpoint, though, is he exciting enough? The um, idea was to return to normalcy. That was kind of one track. Then there was this idea that he'd become this transformational president. That was the other track. It's hard to do both at the same time. Approval weightings are way down. So, I mean, what do you do yeah. in this situation to bring yeah. that back? He, he's also the only one in position that can actually get something done and make a change. We know that uh, geopolitical politics can be uh, strange and un- uh, events can come out of nowhere. And it's important that uh, we have a sitting president that's ready to move. Uh, at the end of the day, he is the most powerful person on the planet. And of course, I, I would argue that he can do more to uh, 
uh, leverage that power to show the American people that we are moving in a better direction after a very tough last couple of years. People are lukewarm on Kamala Harris's presidential prospects as well. In fact, pretty much anybody who ran in 2020 other than Bernie Sanders, who are age is a factor, uh, they all showed pretty substantial weaknesses as far as their credentials. So is it going to have to be a new name entirely, someone who has not yet run for president to uh, save the party here? Yeah, and I think the idea of saving the party in 24 um, is, is not a uh, it's not a fully cooked idea. Uh, this is something maybe for 2028, but for 2024, President Biden is our best option. He's the one in the most, uh, he has, he's in position to uh, make things happen. It's just a matter of having it uh, occur. Okay, given that's so the, there's a lot of problems here. Given that's the, that's the point, do you feel confident about that? I feel confident that he is the best person to uh, represent the Democratic Party on the Democratic side. Uh, the challenge is that we have the American people in general, we're, we're all suffering at, at the gas pump with inflation. And we, there are some really good reasons locally and, um, and internationally. But now's the time where Democrats have to really have ideas and push for them. I think what we're seeing is a, a example of Democrats' best ideas have often been, we're not Trump. And so when you don't have Trump in the picture, you know, we have to make sure that we're standing on our own ideas. So we have some work to do. So what do you get done, though, past the midterms when the Republicans could have more control than they have right now when things couldn't get done to that massive kind of a scale that was hoped by some over the last couple of years? Sure. There's still some more room that you can do with uh, just presidential power, just bringing people to the table. Uh, we still haven't seen a flex of presidential muscle to really look at supply chain and really bring in a possible uh, uh, industry that has that has kind of taken advantage of inflation to do some price gouging. Uh, there's been, uh, a, I guess, a hesitation to really uh, call some people to the to the carpet. Uh, we've seen a willingness to go after Putin, but you can't blame everything after Putin. We have some things right here in our own backyards that we have to work on. So between baby formula, the cost of chicken and cost of gas, uh, if he can show that we're, he's doing everything he can, I think that can uh, build some trust with the American people. What do you think of our governor here, whose most of his statements these days, quite frankly, are very national in scope? Yeah, I think that's uh, that tends to be an issue with a lot of governors is uh, folks have this kind of national platform. But the people that you have to uh, serve are right there in your own backyard. And uh, that's that's something that I think each governor has to do a better job balancing. All right. Dr. Jahal Howard, Democratic strategist, Georgia-based civil rights advocate. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Brian Ping, and today for Charles Feldman. The calls for some kind of gun control have been growing by the day following the mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo and in Laguna Woods. Activists pushing lawmakers do something, anything to deal with the problems of gun violence. It seems lawmakers are listening this time. A bipartisan group of senators has announced a framework for some gun restrictions. They include closing loopholes and increasing background checks for gun purchases by people between ages 18 and 21. But is it enough? Mark Barton is co-founder and CEO. CEO of Sandy Hook Promise Action Fund, whose son Daniel was killed in the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, we didn't hear anything about an assault weapons ban or a raise in the age to own an assault weapon or a gun, but it's something. Is something better than absolutely nothing? Yes, absolutely something is better than absolutely nothing. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a small step forward, um, 
there's also an important message, uh, I, I think, of hope and unity to, to share with the nation that, uh, as you say, a bipartisan group of uh, legislators can come together across the partisan divide on what has typically been a very partisan issue. Uh, and with, with, with hope, hopefully, uh, with the best interest of, of the constituents in mind, uh, who have been asking for this and demanding it and begging for it for over a decade. Uh, so I, I, I think this is a good start and uh, it, it, sets, it sets the stage and sets a precedent for, for further uh, work on this issue and with bipartisan support. Yeah, so people talk about baby steps, and maybe this is one. Do we, do we keep, to that last point, do we keep taking the baby steps, or do we just take this one step, and then they say, oh, look, we did something. Now we don't have to do anything more. No, and it's up to the constituents. It's up to the voters to send that message loud and clear that this is a part of, uh, this, is, this is a start on where we need to uh, continue to evolve uh, as a nation. And, and look, everything that, that they're talking about uh, has been researched, evidence-based, informs us that it's uh, constitutional and that they're effective. Um, so while it's not a whole lot, it's, it's a little something. Uh, this little something will, will go towards saving lives and, and building this community back, this, this country back. And um, it's, it sets a precedent that we can do this in a bipartisan way and, uh, and come out favorable. And I, don't, I, I think these legislators will see that this is what their constituents, in fact, do want. We could see a change in control of Congress uh, early next year. Are you afraid that uh, progress that we make this year might be rolled back? Well, again, you know, it's up to the voters. That we, we know that we've had the numbers, you know. I mean, something as, as, uh, as modest as uh, universal background checks, closing those loopholes in the background check system, has seen the favor of uh, at least 90% of Americans consistently for the better part of a decade. Those folks need to uh, speak up and make sure that their legislators know that this is where we want to go as a country. This is how we have to. Um, this is part of protecting our children and making our community safer. And the, the, the voters need to demand it. And if uh, the legislators, doesn't matter what aisle they're on, side of the, side of, side of the aisle they're on, if, if they're not willing to do this, uh, then it's time uh, to show up in the, you know, make sure you show up at the voting booth and, and send them home if they're, not, uh, if they're not ready to act on the better, uh, the better for the well-being of their constituents. What part of this framework is the most significant to you? Um, there, there's a lot of good in this, you know, uh, I think incentivizing states to enact the extremist protection order is, is a good one. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, research shows us that that does work and it does save lives. And it not only doesn't infringe on people's second amendment rights, it actually protects them. Uh, it prevents them from misusing that firearm and then losing those rights. Uh, so, so this is evidence-based, um, uh, policy that works, um, Strengthening the background check for under 21, I think it, it, it will, will definitely help. Um, I, I think 18-year-olds uh, should not be able to, to purchase uh, lethal weapons as an impulse buy. Uh, so this will prevent that. Uh, it, 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 uh, it addresses the straw purchase and, uh, and gun trafficking. You know, folks, folks love to say how, you know, if Chicago has strong gun laws, why do they have such a bad shooting epidemic? Well, it's because those guns are coming from neighboring states with lax gun laws. Uh, so addressing that, uh, I think, will go a long way uh, to saving lives. And, um, and of course, we need, we need to continue to fund and support uh, mental health and wellness programs in this country. That's what we do at Sandy Hook Promise. We train students how to recognize warning signs and connect somebody to help before, they, before it becomes something more serious. Uh, and, and we need to have those support services uh, available and, and funded so that uh, we do have access to quality 
mental health and wellness programs. I was thinking and listening to a piece this weekend about the lack of therapists or even just, you know, basic school counselors in schools. Would that be a big change if you could get that money and get those kind of people back into schools where they used to be? But, you know, it's really easy to find schools without them now. That's right. And, you know, like I said, our Know the Signs uh, programs uh, teach students how to look for the warning signs. And those warning signs are always there. We see that happen every time. And it's not just mass shootings, it's suicide, it's other forms of violence. <clears throat> and uh, when, when we train our students how to uh, recognize those warning signs, get a trusted adult to help, help this person, it might be uh, a student concerned about their own at-risk behaviors, they might be ideating on self-harm, or they see that behavior in somebody else. We train them to, to tell a trusted adult, and that trusted adult uh, should have access to uh, quality services, and there should be a counselor on site. I, we have stories of students who have used our program who are concerned about their own mental health, and they had to drive several hours uh, to, to the closest location where they could have in-person uh, mental health treatment. So uh, it's, it's really important that we have, uh, we have folks uh, in the schools and in the communities who can address uh, mental health and wellness. And we're seeing, unfortunately, this spike in in suicide and suicidal ideation in our youth uh, um, over the last few years. So it's really critical that we we, we can fund uh, and support a, a network of mental health professionals for our schools and communities. Mark Barden, co-founder, CEO of Sandy Hook Promise Action Fund. Mark, thanks. The Wall Street Bears wake up from a long hibernation and they are hungry, gobbling up the bulls. How's that visual? Stocks have now entered a bear market as the S&P 500 fell nearly 4% today. The Dow fell more than 875 points. The visual no worse than how your 401k is doing. Uh, the Fed could take action on interest rates later this week. Uh, with us is Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia.com. Caleb, thanks for being here. So can we link today to something one read seems to be the aforementioned Fed is going to have to deal out even more uh, harsh medicine, let's call it, after the last report on inflation? Yeah, it's the perfect storm of just really high inflation over 8.6%, higher than we thought it was going to be. And the fact that the only tools the Fed has to combat it is by raising interest rates. They're going to do that this week. The thinking is they'll do it by a half a percentage point. That would be the second raise this year. They're going to raise interest rates five or six times this year. But the fear, guys, is that they raise them too much, too quick, or not quickly enough, and the economy goes into a deep freeze and the recession. That's why you're seeing this. Investors cannot see the future. And if they can't see the future, that uncertainty is like kryptonite. So they've just been bailing out of risky assets like stocks and cryptocurrency. Is anyone besides anyone who has uh, you know, a lot of investments in oil or shorting stocks, is anyone making money right now? Yeah, if you're invested in the energy sector, you've had a great year so far. After several years of really poor performance, the money is being made in, in oil and energy stocks right now. Also, you're seeing it in some dividend stocks, but barely. We're talking about gains in the energy sector of over 25%. Meanwhile, the broader market, the S&P 500, down more than 20%. And those tech stocks, forget about it, the NASDAQ. So another four and a half percent today, the Nasdaq down thirty-five percent. That's where the big tech stocks live. Is it too late to to jump on some of these you know, energy stocks like Exxon Mobil, or yeah, have, have you kind of missed the boat there because prices might be around? Would it be a case of you know buying high at this point? Yeah, you'd be buying high at this point. That said, there are many smart people that believe we're in the very beginnings of a commodity super cycle. This is not just an energy blip with oil at 120 bucks. Yes, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has about 10% to do with that. 
But this is the beginning of an energy super cycle where we're going to need a lot more commodities for the foreseeable future. So some people think this is going to play out for a long time. And if you have the summer to invest in energy stocks, it's never too late. The question is, when is the rest of the market going to come back? And right now, that looks like it's a long way out. Yeah, on the other side, are we kind of past the buy the dip thing? Because some people are saying, you know what? I bought the dip the last three dips and I'm out of money to buy the dip with. Yeah, and I think that's also kind of a, a scary way to treat your investments. You want to have a plan. You want to have a strategy. And I know it's really difficult when we see brutal face-ripping sell-offs like the one we've seen today and last Friday. It's very hard. But the best thing to do for long-term investors that don't need the money in 5, 10, 15, or 20 years, keep buying every month, same amount. You're never going to pick the top. You're never going to pick the bottom. So the dip, forget the dip. Just keep continually buying in dollar cost averaging in. Now, if you're worried the market's going to go down another 20%, Wait it out. You don't have to do anything. That's a decision you can make as well. I'll do nothing. Keep it in neutral, and I'll get back involved when things look a little bit better. I mean, how downcast should we feel, or even scared, about the fact that we're now in a bear market? I mean, it doesn't exactly sound like you know the early days of COVID when there was you know pent up demand. It doesn't seem to be as much of a light down at the end of that tunnel right now. Yeah, and that's the thing. And you know, the economy was in decent shape going into twenty twenty two. Obviously, the spike in energy prices threw things a little bit out of whack, and inflation is very persistent. But yeah, this looks like it could take a while for it to shake out. We're not going to go back to the days of these big tech stock gains and the meme stocks flying all over the place because the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. Tech stocks, those energy, those meme stocks that don't have any problems, they do great in a zero interest rate environment. That's not the environment we're in. We're in a high inflation, rising interest rate environment, very challenging for growth stocks. But Guys, long term, the stock market returns an average of between 8 and 10% a year, going back 80 years. It's not going to happen this year, but it probably will next year. And the year after a bear market is usually a terrific year. Not only that, the best days or half of the best days in the market happen during bear markets, those 2 3% pops. So if you bail out of your stocks, you're going to miss those big pops, and it's going to be harder for you to get traction and regain your losses. Your confidence in the Fed to not screw this up, because we're not left with the greatest options, to your point earlier. If it was called transitory too long and action wasn't taken early on, now we're left with this uh, less desirable kind of palette. Yeah, I think they're late to the game and they're going to raise rates aggressively, but they've been pretty transparent. So it's not going to be a 1% increase in interest rate uh, on Wednesday when the Fed makes its decision. It's going to be these half percent increases till we get to about 2.75-3% on the Fed funds rate. That's where they want it by the end of the year. So my confidence in them landing this uh, softly is pretty, it's pretty low because we've never been in a situation like this before. That said, I do have confidence in the American economy. Big story we've had uh, you know, here locally today is the L.A. market is the worst for first-time homebuyers buyers because it's just too difficult. But is that pretty much the case everywhere? Is there, you know, a, an under-the-radar market where somebody who's willing to move might be able to look because, you know, real estate continues to go higher, and that looks like a good long-term investment given light of everything else? Yeah, if you look at the 20 biggest cities across the country, price rises in all of them over the past year, upwards of 20-odd percent. So, yeah, prices are high. Inventory is still very tight, and the homes that are available are typically over $500,000 in those big metro areas. So you got to look outside those metro areas. you got to look at places where people haven't been moving in droves over the past couple of years. People have been moving in droves to San Diego, to Phoenix, to Denver, even up into the Bay Area in some places. So that's where it's gotten super expensive. But the quickest, you got to look outside of those areas if you want to try to find any deals. But with interest rates, the mortgage rate over 5%, 
it's challenging for first-time homebuyers to come up with a down payment and then service that payment every month. They may be priced out for the next couple of years. Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief, Investopedia.com. Caleb, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Brian Ping, and today for Charles Feldman. Russia making slow and steady progress in eastern Ukraine, the industrial heartland of the country, getting even closer to taking over a key strategic city, might enable the Russians to control the Donbass region. Hope is not lost for Ukraine, but is Russia bolstered by the decreasing focus on Ukraine by the West? Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a CNN Global Affairs analyst. Uh, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Uh, do you think that the fact that Russia is clawing back uh, some of this ground here and threatening to have a major strategic victory could uh, supposedly reinvigorate uh, the West to pay attention here because uh, there's a added sense of urgency. I don't know. You know, a lot of this is uh, it's, um, opaque, to, t- to tell you the truth. I mean, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians have enough equipment or people, you know, to carry out a sustained advance in, in the Donbass. Ukrainians were able to push the Russians back out of cities like Kharkiv, but that's now stalled. And the Russians are falling back on a a familiar tactic, which is pulverizing um, the opposition uh, and urban areas and villages with long range artillery. Uh, So I don't I don't think the Russians have the capacity um, basically to um, assert their control over the entire Donbass region. This this conflict is going to come down to the following. The side that wins is not the side that has a victory in this battle or not. Uh, Severodonetsk, for example, the city over which they're, the two sides are fighting not. The side who's going to win is the one who can outlast the other politically, and with enough material and man and woman power over the long run. And this is going to be a slog both for, both for Russia and Ukraine. Even with the assistance of the West, Ukraine is still going to have major difficulties in trying to sustain its uh, confrontation with Russia. It's a smaller country, maybe the second largest country in Europe. In Europe. It's, not, it's not Russia. And Russia is going to have increasing difficulties with morale and logistic difficulties with their own military forces. So I imagine a lot of a lot of what we're what we're seeing in in Donbas, you're right, are incremental Russian gains, I think with the inability to follow up in any in any clear strategic manner. So then it's going to take sustained support from the West. Do you think that that the countries are losing interest slowly? Can can we keep that up? Well, you know, it is interesting. Nothing in America, they say, lasts for more than 15 minutes. And I tell you, I see I see a lot more Ukrainian flags still than American flags. Um, I think that 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 the prospects for Ukraine turning into a money pit, uh, particularly uh, in the run up to the midterms, I don't know how many additional 40 billion dollar packages, not just arms packages, it takes five billion dollars a month to sustain the Ukrainian government with financial and economic assistance. I don't know how much patience um, public opinion will have for Ukraine. Right now, it's still pretty high. And Putin, frankly, has created what no American politician could, a fleeting moment of bipartisanship where you have these aid assistance packages basically sailed through Congress. You had 50-some Republicans uh, object to the last one. But as you get to the midterms, it seems to me the... Um, far right of the Republican Party and maybe even some progressive Democrats will become a little less happy 
particularly given the prospects of the recession here, of pouring a lot of money into Ukraine uh, without seemingly much, uh, much in the way of, uh, of returns. There's growing criticism of Ukraine that while it is touting its victories, it is staying pretty silent on its defeats. And it's not really, uh, you know, letting some people that are you know, investing into it, like the United States, really know the whole picture of what's going on. Of course, this uh, damages uh, U.S. interests, but you also didn't think it would have to hurt Ukraine in the long run as well. No, it, it is true. I think there's a certain opacity. We're not hearing much about Ukrainian casualties, a lot about Russian casualties through the Ukrainian ministry, various Ukrainian ministries, but not much about, and you can understand why. I think Ukraine's losses, both its economic losses and its losses in manpower and the, and the extent of the destruction, uh, is still not fully known. And it would not surprise me of the 250,000 um, um, military forces in the, that comprise the Ukrainian military, that their losses have been roughly 10, that could be anywhere up to 25,000. Um, and, and, and those are just killed, not counting wounded. The Russians' have, uh, casualties are substantially more than that. We've heard reports 35 to 40,000. Um, but uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, you can't have, in this sort of relationship, uh, intelligence shared in, uh, you know, as, as a, one, a one-way street. And that raises the whole question of how this ends and at what point. Does the United States have a sort of heart-to-heart talk with Vladimir Zelensky about what he what he feels is the uh, is the end game here? Putin is not interested in negotiating. That's the real problem. And I think um, Tolstoy said it better than anyone: uh, the two strongest warriors are time and patience. And I think that the side that has m- more of time and patience is the one that, in the end, may well will out. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, CNN Global Affairs Analyst. Remembering all your passwords can be difficult. That's why a lot of people use the same password for multiple accounts. That's a no-no because hackers could figure that out and then, well, they can cause a lot of problems for you at that point. So Apple says, you know what? Get rid of passwords. We'll do something else. With us is Sean Tuma, cybersecurity expert, attorney specializing in cases involving cybersecurity, data privacy, data breaches. Sean, thanks for being here. So they were showing off something at their uh, conference uh, the other week. What is their new plan for uh, how to get into all your accounts? So their plan is to essentially do away with the password and use what's called a pass key, which is really a biometric feature that uses a facial scan or fingerprint, which is exactly what those of us who are iPhone users have been using, uh, you know, for a few years now. What they're going to do is make this to where it not only works to get into your phone and your apps on your phone, but now websites and online services, things of that nature as well. How is this much more different than you know, if I'm trying to log into a website and if I've you know saved the password on my keychain on my phone, it'll you know, prompt a face ID, and if that goes through, I'm in. Is, I, is this just taken to the next level here? Yeah, it really is. It's taken it to the next level. A password is something we know as a form of authentication, so it's it's a, a a piece of information that we know these biometric features are now something that we have, which is like our facial recognition, our, our facial features or our fingerprints. So it's, it's more difficult to replicate 
And um, the idea here is exactly what y'all said on the intro, which is people continue to use weak, un, you know, real predictable passcodes, and it's created a huge cybersecurity problem. And so this is a way, this is not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all our problems, but it's better than what we've had. Yeah. Instead of let me in one, two, three, four, uh, you use my face or use my fingerprint. But who has that? Who has the picture, the scan of my face? If I lose my phone, am I out of luck for getting into all these accounts that I set up to use my face on my phone to get into? Yeah. So that that's going to be a significant problem that we don't really know how to address yet, which is if you lose your phone and let's say you only have a desktop or a laptop computer, how are you then able to get into these accounts if it can't take that image of your fingerprint or your face? So that's going to be a significant problem that we're going to have to just work our way through as we go forward now. So once all these you know advancements come through, I'm sure you'd still recommend uh, possibly a password manager like Dashlane, something like that? Well, this is going to, in essence, do away with the functionality of that where you have this biometric scan set up, um, the password manager won't work because it won't hold that image of you. And so, you know, we could create more problems than we do good here uh, by going along this process, because through, through my work, we know that password managers are pretty dadgum secure. So if you're using password managers and a decent password, you know, not eight six seven five three zero nine to get into <laughs> it, then uh, you know, then for our generation, right? Then then you're going to be pretty safe. And this is going to create a lot of problems. And the other big concern I have is it's all digital, whether it's a a, a phrase whether it's a word or whether it's a, an image of your bio biometric scan, right? It's all digital, which means it has to interact with a website at some level to show it is who it says it is. Well, we see attacks all the time where websites are being attacked and the passwords in those websites are being stolen, um, which is why you don't reuse your old passwords is one reason. Well, that was to say they can't steal that image of your face or that image of your thumbprint as well. And the problem there is if that happens, how do you replace it? How do you don't change your face or your thumbprint? So I, I'm a little worried about this, too. Yeah. And I guess, like you said, we've got to just take it as they roll it out and see what kind of problems people have. And then hopefully they go in and fix those. I think, too, about like, what if I'm just going to borrow a computer really quick because I got to go check on something like then I can't get in because it doesn't have my fingerprint set up on my buddy's laptop or something. Or I, I don't know. They've probably got ideas for all this because the future is here. I mean, phones know when they're close to computers and they steal the Wi-Fi passwords for each other and you can share that kind of stuff. So maybe you can share this, but it's all very, um, you know, moving forward and looking forward, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, Apple has, they're, they're very, very smart people. They've done amazing things. They don't ask us what we really want. They kind of tell us. And, uh, and I think the lesson we all need to take here is this is something we need to be paying attention to. So we're all learning how to do this as we go forward and we don't get left in a, in a lurch like that. Are Android and Microsoft and everybody working on the similar kind of thing for, for biometrics? Or do I get like locked into someone's world? If I'm only using Apple, can I only get in through my, my Apple accounts? 
So um, Google and Microsoft are both working on similar concepts. And the idea is that there is a unified organization out there that has uh, baseline standards. It's called Fast Identity Online Alliance. That's going to have a baseline of standards that they'll all work to. And so if, if it works for one, it should work for the others, which is what they're trying to do to create some uniformity here. You think there's going to be a pretty big learning curve for some people? I mean, some just aren't even yeah. up on the face ID yet. Like they still want the fingerprint on the phone and not even just the touch screen or like a passcode. Some people just, you know, I'll type it in every time. I don't want to do the rest of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, what keeps me in business is the person who can't uh, understand that a passcode can't be the name of your pet that you have posted on your blog. <laughs> you know, that's really where the bulk of, of so much of what we see. If we can't get people to understand that, it's going to be real challenging getting them to understand interchanging these biometric images. And and the, the big concern is our biometric is part of our privacy. That's our personal privacy also. Where does that go? You know, who has that? Now, every act, website we access, that's a concern. All right. Sean Tuma, cybersecurity experts, attorney specializing in cases involving all that stuff. Cybersecurity, data privacy, data breaches. Sean, thanks. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow 